Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host and travel journalist Holly Rubenstein and today we're embarking on a journey to the east of Africa to a country of spectacular, wild and natural landscapes where the wildlife is abundant, the famous Big Five roaming free, a country of great plains, mountains, lush forests and white sand beaches. It's captivated adventurers and travellers the world over. It is, of course, magical Kenya. On today's episode, we'll be hearing first from some of my previous podcast guests who have chosen parts of Kenya in their travel diaries. Wildlife cameraman Gavin Thurston returns to the podcast to share his experiences, having spent so much of his career travelling around and working in Kenya. And we'll hear from one of my guests coming up on season six too. We'll be heading on a tour of the country, starting in its capital, Nairobi, and ending in Samburu National Park in the north. And it's in Samburu that my final guest, Sabah Douglas Hamilton, has lived for the last six years. Sabah is a conservationist and award-winning TV presenter. She was born and raised in Kenya, and you might recognize Sabah as a presenter of the BBC's hugely successful Big Cat Diaries, The Secret Life of Elephants, and This Wildlife. She'll be joining us later to reflect on our tour of Kenya, sharing her tales of living and working in the country and her own Kenyan travel diaries. So Kenya is now on the travel green list for UK travellers. So I hope this episode inspires you to think about a bucket list experience like travelling to Kenya and experiencing all that it has to offer. We've got so much to cover. So let's get started in Nairobi. That's where most visitors will fly into first, where journalist and TV presenter Giles Corrin shares an unforgettable hotel and wildlife experience that he covered on the BBC show Amazing Hotels. Monica and I went to Kenya for the first ever show that we did together. Yeah, and we stayed in Giraffe Manor. And I would probably say that it, it's um, it's like an Edwardian golf club with giraffes. Um, it's and I and it's one of the it's the only place from that I filmed in that I went back with my family and we went back to see my friend Kat. He's living on Diani Beach, which mm-hmm. is down near Mombasa, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful beach, sort of ten miles long. So you've got to come and stay. Um, but to fly to Mombasa, you can't fly direct to Mombasa unless you go with Ethiopian Airlines via Addis Ababa, which I didn't fancy. Or you can fly to Nairobi and then and then you fly to Mombasa. But you arrive, from what I recall, um, in Nairobi, you were, you can't immediately transfer. You have to spend the night. I think the flight, there's not much time difference. The flight arrives, there's only one BA flight. You arrive about 8 p.m. and then you have to wait till morning. So we thought, I thought, well, small kids, we will go to Giraffe Manor just for two nights. It's just to have a stopover and then we can fly to Mombasa. Oh, perfect. And I took the kids. I took the kids. And, and I, honestly, having filmed there, I didn't. It was just a couple of days filming. Oh, yeah, giraffes come into the breakfast room. They put their heads in the door and you feed them. Whatever. Let's just film this scene and go to bed. With my children, suddenly it was like being in, in, in the Lion King. Really? Suddenly, suddenly it was the most exciting thing ever. So anybody with children. And then you have these amazing drawing rooms and the library and the giraffes uh, and the lovely cooking and the incredibly nice uh, incredibly nice uh, Kenyan people, and and um, and it's a great stop off, and then you can sort of head off into Kenya. Sounds wonderful. Yes. So just like Giles, we're heading east to the coast now to the island archipelago of Lamu, with its crystal clear hidden coves, boho boutiques, and sunset parties. Lamu's fast becoming a destination of choice for celebs, from Kate Moss and Mick Jagger to Madonna, Tracy Emin, even the Obamas have been there recently. It's one of Jessica Nabongo's all-time favorite destinations. So Jessica's a guest coming up on season six of the podcast, and she is the first black woman to visit every country in the world, all under the age of 35 too. She's an absolute legend, and she had a lot of destinations to choose from. So picking Lamu is a big endorsement. Let's hear from her now. Where I love most is probably Lamu. Mm -hmm. So what part of Kenya is that? Lamu, it's on the coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on the coast. It's a small island and there's no cars on the island. There's some donkeys and you really get that like Swahili architecture and, you know, there's a strong Muslim culture. It's quiet. It's peaceful. Um, it's just, I, I keep saying I'm going to write my next book in Lamu. It's, there's mm-hmm. just something so peaceful and beautiful about it. And the people there are amazing. The food is 
absolutely delicious. I had fish samosas there for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I texted my mom like, oh my God, they make fish samosas here. <laughs> Cause my mom <laughs> makes very good samosas as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's just such an incredibly special place. So it's an island off the coast of Kenya. So how do you how do you get to it? Yeah, you just, well, we flew like Nairobi to Lamu. Oh, lovely. And then we took a boat to where we were staying. Next, I'm so happy to be joined once again by wildlife cameraman Gavin Thurston, who won an Emmy since we last spoke for David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. Congratulations, Gavin. Gavin has filmed the incredible wildlife of Kenya over the past 30 years, and he shares stories of his experience all around the country, in particular, Savo East, Kenya's biggest national park and one of its oldest over in the east, and then crossing to the southwest to maybe Kenya's most famous region, the Maasai Mara, an area of preserved savanna wilderness, home to breathtaking vistas, endless plains, and of course, so much wildlife. Afterwards, we're joined by Jeffrey Kent, the founder of luxury travel company Abercrombie and Kent. Jeffrey's Kenyan himself, Kenyan born and raised, and the Maasai Mara is the first destination he fell in love with you've been to Kenya multiple times throughout your career I mean it's obviously a place that means a lot to you absolutely I first in fact it was the first foreign shoot I ever did um, I was nicknamed Photo Toto so Toto is boy in in Swahili and I went out as kind of t-boy assistant cameraman for a, the first company I worked for Oxford Scientific Films and spent most of the time in Savo East National Park you know which is one of the larger parks it's sort of three quarters of the way between uh, Nairobi and Mombasa on the coast. Um, I say, if you have a look mm-hmm. on the map. And I've got very fond memories of that because that's the first time I saw elephants and giraffe and zebra and so on in the wild. Um, and it felt really, it just felt like a wild place, an exciting place to explore. And you've got all the different tree shapes and leaf shapes. It's just like, you know, your kind of classic out of Africa imagery. Um, so I've got very fond memories of that. And that was a nine-week shoot and had lots of interesting encounters with uh, different animals. In fact, in my book, I wrote about the um, killer bees um, when we got stuck in the, um, the dry riverbed in the, the Toyota Land Cruiser. And I've been back, I think, 30-odd times since for different film shoots, from Samburu right up in the north. In fact, I drove up um, on an expedition up into Sudan. Uh, so we drove right up, you know, on those long, dry, dusty roads up through Samburu, and I'm trying to think of the names now, Takana, uh, right up to the border so I have seen literally from north to south and on the coast mm-hmm. and when you reflect on your time that you spent there what place would you tell someone who is visiting Kenya that they must visit top of the list if you're going to Kenya you have to go to the Masamara. it's the most magical place mm-hmm. on the planet in terms of the number of species of animals you can see um, you know in such a small space you know literally you can be parked in your vehicle and you can scan the horizon and see maybe 12, 15 different mammal species. And there's very few places on the planet. I mean, I can't think of another place on the planet where you do that. Yeah. It is very touristy. So I think some people are shocked when they get down there at how many vehicles you might see parked around a leopard. But equally, if you're with a good driver and a good um, tracker, uh, you know, uh, guide, they'll find places and you can spend half a day or a day without seeing another vehicle. So there's still areas you can go to where you you can kind of escape the you know the tourist throngs Mm -hmm. but if you if you get your timing right obviously go and see the the wildebeest migration um obviously they follow the rain so they go south of the rains you know because you get the fresh grass and they'll come north again and obviously each time they go north or south they have to cross the river which is when you get these massive aggregations of i don't know five ten thousand animals all thronged together and running the gauntlet of the crocodiles in the in the Mara River and so on. So that is, mm-hmm. I'd say that's top of the list, is Maso Mara. Yeah. And if you are going there, and this isn't a plug for a particular, there are lots of lovely small private camps you can stay in. It depends what you're after. But for me, I think probably nostalgic-wise, um, Governor's Camp, which is one of the oldest camps, it's right on the bend of the mm-hmm. river. You get these lovely big safari tents to stay in. And um, you can be sat having breakfast, looking out and literally see the wildebeest wandering past your, you know, the end of your breakfast table. I stayed at governor's camp as well. When I went to Kenya, that was a place that I stayed when I went to the Masai Mara. And I remember when we were sitting out at dinner, suddenly a hippo 
bounding through the middle of the camp while we were just sitting there eating. There was like a bit of commotion. And then just suddenly there was just this enormous, I mean, of course, <laughs> as from your experience, I mean, hippos are actually like the, very dangerous. the most, yeah. what, very, very dangerous. So I think it actually wasn't quite as um, kind of funny as we found it <laughs> <laughs> at the time. But um, it is uh, one of the, the, the camps that really feel steeped in a kind of traditional history isn't it yeah so i'd say that would be one name drop of a place to stay and as you know you can vouch for mm. that it's but all the you know that i say that i think they sleep maybe 150 or 200 people at that camp and then there are other camps where literally it could be three or four tents so it depends what kind of experience you're after but masamar is an area a definite must um, definitely and then um, the other place which is very close to my heart is a, a, a private um, area called uh, Labour Downs, which is north of Mount Kenya. It's kind of just south of uh, Samburu. Mm-hmm. And if you go there, there's a, a very small lodge called Wilderness Lodge. Um, it's run by um, Will and Emma Craig. Again, some of my early memories of travelling to Kenya are staying there. And the nice thing about it being a, a private reserve, it's actually part of a conservancy so animals are free to roam between the different areas. Although it is fenced, it's a massive fence. It's 40,000 hectares or something. Wow. Um, yeah. And the main reason it's fenced to the south is because you've got all those vegetable growing areas where they're growing, you know, peas and sweet corn and stuff for waitrose and the likes. Um, and the animals, particularly elephants, are very tempted by that. And you get this, mm-hmm. you know, this conflict between humans and animals, which is why it's fenced to try and reduce that conflict. Um, mm-hmm. But the nice thing about being a, a, a private place is there's very, very few people there. You know, you, you can go all day and not see another vehicle. Uh, they've got all the animals you'd want to see, you know, leopard, cheetah, lions, elephant, you name it, giraffe. But you can do it in a very kind of intimate way um, because you're not with throngs of other tourists. Um, and they do these most romantic breakfasts. You're driving for like two or three hours and thinking bloody hell i'm getting hungry god we must be miles from the camp and then you come around the corner and under an acacia will be a table laid out with a white tablecloth and chairs and you know the maasai guys there cooking up your your samburu um, guides or whatever cooking up your breakfast um it's just kind of very out of africa mm. imagery um yeah, yeah so that's yeah. A, a, a you know another um top place to visit also going a bit further north then you've got samburu Na- national park um, and if you're going there, that's the home of Save the Elephants. Sabah Douglas Hamilton and Ian Douglas Hamilton and family run that. They've been running that for years, doing a lot of good work with elephant conservation. Um, and the amazing thing going there is if you stay at their camp, which is Elephant Watch Camp, which again is this beautiful thatched, tented camp right on the river. Um, again, it's not, you know, they don't cater for many people. I think, you know, maybe 16 people tops. But mm-hmm. because they know the area so well, um, and they've studied the elephants for so long, they know every single elephant. And they know its history, and they know who its mother are, you know, yeah. its father, all this kind of thing, the age of them. Um, and also the elephants are very relaxed there, and they're very used to the um, the Elephant Watch Camp vehicles. So you'll literally have these elephants really chilled, walking within two feet of your vehicle. And if you haven't seen an elephant before, it is very intimidating, is but it, yeah. it's an amazing experience. Um, so Samburu um, and Elephant Watch Camp is another, you know, must must go to place. Samburu, in comparison to say the Masai Mara, I never went up to Samburu. So, how does the landscape vary between the two places? Because Kenya is a very diverse landscape, isn't it? I mean, absolutely. People picture they picture the Mara, but you know there are there are big rainforests and towering mountains as well yeah so if you're um yeah so the Masai Mara is mostly open plain you've got um shrubbery areas and croton thicket which is like a you know scrubby bush area with a buffaloes and things will hang out mm-hmm. um, but it's mostly open with the river winding through it and you've got riverine forest which follows the river down and governor's camp is in the edge of that forest so you've got nice variety there but there's not many hills it's quite low lying but as you go further north of course you go up past if you're going up to um Samburu or Lewa Downs, you go past Mount Kenya on your right, which usually is pretty visible. You go up past Lake Nakuru and Lake Bagoria. Uh, is Lake Bagoria there? Lake Naivasha. is awful. Lake Naivasha, that's the one, um, which is home to the flamingos, of course. Um, they do move, so they're not always in the same place. But yeah, so the, you know, you've got that mountain um, on your right hand side, very imposing with a little bit of snow on the top. But Lewa Downs is, it's also got open plains, um, but it's a bit more rocky. You've got some 
um, you know, like little rocky dry riverbeds and things. It's slightly drier than the Mara. And as you go up to Samburu, then one thing that becomes apparent is the landscape is dotted with uh, termite mounds, which are extraordinary. You know, a termite is, if you've never seen one, is about, what, six, seven mil long, I suppose. And yet, you know, a million or so of these live in a termite mound. And they, they build these huge towers which stick up, you know, two, three metres. Um, and in fact, as you go further north to Lake Begoria, you know, some of those towers are like four metres high. It's extraordinary, all made by this tiny army yeah. of, of termites. So again, they're, they're just kind of... I think this is the, the wonderful thing about travel is, you know, the, the visual feast of just seeing different things. It's stimulating to see different tree shapes or different leaves or different animals or different landscapes. And, um, and certainly Kenya has a very diverse range of that. I think you fall in most things when you're a child, and I fell in love with the Maasai Mara. The Maasai Mara, today known as the Maasai Game Reserve, in those days there were no game reserves, there were no national parks, there was nothing. So I grew up in complete wilderness. My dad was in the King's African Rifles. We had all the army trucks and cars and camps, and he would every holidays he would take me off or time when he had holidays, and I'd say to my dad, where are we going, Dad? And he said, somewhere where you can't drink the water. I wow, that's exciting. You can't <laughs> drink the water. Nobody has been there. He said, exactly. But we will take our own water. I said, yay. And so off we went. I love that. He instilled that adventure in you right from the very beginning. Yeah. And so I went down the Masama. And, and so this is where I grew up with animals. You know, I mean, it was amazing. We lived in a lovely camp, you know, pretty rough army camp. Mm-hmm. Um, went after went, went sh- shooting in the evening for guinea fowl and, and uh, because we had to eat, we shot. Uh, there was no, nothing to eat otherwise, so we shot for the pot, you know. And um, so I grew up in this whole area. The, the game warden was a lovely guy, another fellow officer called Major Lynn Templebora, and he was in charge of this whole area. And so that's where I grew up and fell in love with the Maasai Mara. And then, of course, when I became just before I went to Santos, uh, now I'm a man. I went with Lynn Templebora and and uh, shot for the first time and the last time, but I shot a buffalo and elephant. And it, but it reminded me so much of my horses, I vowed that I would never do that again. Um, but it sort of was a, a passage of life, really. And then, of course, it was made into game reserve. Then I come back, I do the army. I come back, I start Abercrombie Kent with my mother, mum and dad. And my first place where I put one of my luxury cabs, the first one in the world, think how many luxury cabs are today, but that was number one. I had it at Governor's Camp in the Maasai Mara. So, of course, the Great Migration has to be one of the most incredible sites ever. 1.5 million uh, wildebeest, you know, 800,000 zebra, 200,000 uh, uh, Tommies and Grants Gazelle. What an amazing site. And mm-hmm. so that's when I built my next camp called Kichwatembo, uh, which was near the Maasai Mara. And today I have Olanana, which is a beautiful lodge on the river. And so that was it. Then my mum and dad died. My dad died first. And I said to my mom, I'm going to bury him in the Maasai Mara. And so because so I, I bought a big lot of land. Do you remember the movie Out of Africa? And you had that amazing breakfast with Meryl Streep. And, uh, you remember that one? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's just near there. I bought the whole site actually on the edge of the Rift Valley. And that's where I buried my mom and my dad. I oh. buried there. And um, I always go there when I'm there, have a cup of tea, and I can think, well, they're here, the animals are all around, they're watching everything, and hopefully it'll be a long, long time before I die. I've still got, you know, many still young, still in my teenage years, but there's mm-hmm. a few years to come. <laughs> but uh, that's how I think, anyhow. So that's where I'll be buried, and hopefully my children will be buried there. And so, so it's from the start of my life to the end of my life. So that's the area I really, really love. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you, you talk about growing up in Kenya. Um, the Maasai Mara is quite a contrast in a way to the Abadares where you lived, isn't it? In the sense that yeah, the landscape yeah. and everything is, there's, mm-hmm. they're not that comparable really, are they? No, not at all. But how do you know the Abadares? You, have you been to the Abadares or not? I have, yes, yeah. Yeah, um, you said it with such confidence. I said, hmm. Yeah, you know I... I am. Um, I did one trip around Kenya where I went to um, that stayed in Nairobi, the Abadares at Abadare Country Club, oh, okay, um, okay. and then um, down to the Masai Mara and Lake Navasha actually, and Lake Nakuru as well. 
So it was a lovely trip. So you were, I grew up, you know, we grew up at 8,900 feet, just under 9,000 feet high in the Abadez. Um, that's why was, we had frost and ice outside. And then, of course, my dad and mum always wanted to go down to warm areas when they could. And the, the nearest place with wilderness was the Maasai Mara. I mean, it was quite quite close in those days. So that's why we popped up and down the Maasai Mara between the two. And, of course, we went to the beaches, too. We went down to Diani and Malindi, where I still have a home in Malindi. That's another beautiful place. The Kenya beaches are beautiful, lovely. Finally, we head north of the equator to Samburu National Park, where influencer Lucy Williams picks her all-time favourite hotel. Kenya, I just absolutely loved. We stayed. I've stayed at this amazing place called Sasab in Samburu, oh, wow. which is this just amazing, sustainable, beautifully run hotel that's sort of perched up on, on kind of up on a riverbed. It's got incredible views, and it's just, it's sort of, it's it. It feels lux- it's luxurious, definitely, but it's not one of those African safari spots that feels very sort of, am I in Africa? You know, mm. it feels very in touch with where it is, and it's just magic, really, really magical. And you're like, they, you know, they'll make you make you breakfast on the back of the truck in the morning in the bush, and it's super dry and arid in that part of Kenya, but actually that kind of just adds to it somehow mm-hmm. that sounds magical. we went quad biking down the dry riverbed and then had like dinner in the tree like under with by candlelight it was just yeah it's so amazing romantic. it was very romantic i was just with a group of friends so it was not um <laughs> not well, and so fun yeah it was yeah. really fun um so yeah i just love i yeah africa is definitely i've definitely got the bug for going back there Well, what a tour of magical Kenya. And now we head back to Nairobi, where conservationist and TV presenter Saba Douglas Hamilton joins us. Welcome to the Travel Diary, Saba. It's great to meet you. Thank you. I'm hugely excited because I've been hearing all sorts of voices I recognise. And it's fun. It's almost like catching up with old friends. Oh, that's so amazing. So of of my guests, I know that you've got a a special relationship with Gavin, who we heard from over at the beginning there. That's right. Gavin and I have worked together many, many years um, all over the world, mostly in the Mara doing Big Cat Diary, but also in in other places as well. And he's truly one of the best wildlife cameramen that I know and also one of my greatest friends. That's wonderful. And he just won an Emmy, of course, which is very exciting. I'm super proud. Uh, so where are you joining me from today? I'm actually in Nairobi and mm-hmm. uh, where I live is is borders the giraffe sanctuary. Our land actually joined up with the giraffe sanctuary 40 years ago. So we have the Rothschild giraffe coming here. We have uh, warthogs every day that we feed. Uh, we have bushbuck. We've even had lion jumping over our gate wow. and coming uh, into our garden, which is quite extraordinary. Um, and I live in a little tree house here with my kids and my husband. It's just an upstairs and a downstairs. Um, And every evening, just after the sun sets, we have this gorgeous little bush baby that comes climbing down out of a tree, blinking at us sleepily, um, demanding his first banana of the night, (laughs) which is how we we like to share our breakfast and, and dinner together. So it's pretty special. Oh, it sounds absolutely magical. And you were born in Africa, born and raised, uh, spending most of your life, you know, living among the animals, right? I was. I'm, I'm actually Kenyan. I was born in Kenya and um, I have spent most of my life with elephants. I would say that would be the primar- that primary animal um, mm-hmm. in our life because my father is a zoologist. Um, he was the first person to study African elephant social behavior in the wild in the 1960s. And uh, along with my mother, and then he wrote his PhD on it. So all the fundamental things that we know about elephants now, like the fact that they are matriarchies, that was actually his primary discovery. Absolutely incredible work. And I understand that when you were just a baby, you met your first elephant. When I was about six weeks old, I believe, and there was this very special elephant who had developed an, a really interesting relationship with my father. Her, her name was Virgo. And she was about 18 years old and just this delightful, curious individual who was 
had some kind of interest in this human being that she kept on coming across. Uh, he was often on foot um, and he was always around the elephant families. And over time, she came quite used to him and would actually come up and greet him, stretch out her trunk and sniff him. Every now and then, I think he even gave her a banana or piece of sugarcane or a gardenia fruit. Mm-hmm. But when I was born, um, my mother took me in her arms and she walked out on foot towards this completely wild elephant and presented me to her. And Virgo came forward and reached out her trunk and sniffed all over my body. And then she brought her own calf forward. And it was almost like this introduction between two mothers, of course, which I can't remember at all because I was only six weeks old. But I do always like to think that I was baptized in elephant breath. Oh, that is just such a magical vision. How moving that must have been for your mum. I think it was. I think it was one of those, you know, one of those unbelievable landmark moments of your life yeah. for her. And of course, you've since dedicated a huge amount of your effort and energy and life to elephants from that moment. Yes. I mean, I I think, you know, when you're brought up um, in a family of conservationists, you you live, breathe and eat conservation and talk about it all the time. So Mm -hmm. it's it's very much in our DNA. And your work with Elephant Watch Camp keeps at front and centre. What I've done is um, I've actually taken over a a beautiful, very very special eco camp that was started by my mother where we do elephant watching so we're springboarding off the uh, 25 years or so that save the elephants have been working in samburu in north kenya uh, where we they know a population of around about a thousand elephants that obviously come and go and are born and die uh, over time um But we know every single one of those individuals by name. And we can trace babies that are born today. We can trace their family lineage back four generations. Mm. So it's wonderful. You know, not only do we know the mother, the grandmother, we also know the great grandmother. And there have been fascinating things that have been coming out from this data. Uh, We're looking at we've, we've seen relationships that young elephants have now with families that you wouldn't expect them to actually want to spend time with, um, or you wouldn't understand why they were spending a time with that animal. We've seen this specifically with orphans um, who, of the ivory trade who have been struggling and trying to find ways to survive. Um, and they've suddenly made a link with the family and we couldn't figure out why that particular family. But when we look back through the data, what we found was that their grandmothers had had an amazing connection. And that little baby had probably been introduced to that family right in the early years of its life and had remembered a particular individual and had realized that that individual was important to its family and had then reached out and had had a response in return. So, you know, there's so little we know about these animals. We're still really scratching the surface. That's incredible. So Elephant Watch, what we do uh, there is is like whale watching, actually inspired by that idea of whale watching, is that we take people who come to Africa, generally tend to be passionate about Africa or about wildlife. Mm -hmm. And so we take them out to meet the elephants, not as great grey pachydams, but as individuals of families that have relationships and that have Um, have navigated their way through the trials and tribulations of life. So you you would go and you would meet Anastasia, who is the matriarch of the royal family. And a few years ago, you would have met Cleopatra, who is her sister, with whom she was a joint matriarch, which is unheard of. Nobody hears about joint matriarchs. But these two sisters were so aligned in their thinking that uh, they would make decisions they would make decisions together almost simultaneously. And as a result, their family was the biggest and the strongest and the most dominant, um, didn't lose any members to ivory poaching. Um, and, and so you can, you know, you, you just meet them. It's a whole other layer of uh, a whole other profundity, I suppose, in understanding um, about elephants. Absolutely. Beyond traveling to Samburu to take, you know, the best photo you could take of an elephant. What visitors are getting to experience is actually understanding the familial dynamics, the 
the whole ecosystem in, 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 in a kind of much more profound way. Yes, and the larger conservation issues that are affecting them. So what we're trying to do at Elephant Watch is I, I find that people, uh, you know, we're quite a raw camp. You, it's, it's you're very close to nature. You're very safe. It's very uh, comfortable and beautiful and, and uh, all your needs are met. But of course, for many people who come from places like New York and are listening to sirens all night. When they come to Africa, they lie there awake all night for the first night, absolutely terrified by the sounds that they're hearing, <laughs> because you know they can't they can't interpret the language of of wild creatures. And so what we find is it takes the first night they survive it and they wake up the next morning and it's almost like this 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 skin has peeled off and out comes this brand new butterfly that stretches out its wings and takes off into Africa. And it's the most wonderful thing to observe. I, I love it. I bet. In a way, the more alarmed people are by that first day, the more they respond to the experience. And by the end of it, by the third or the fourth day, uh, we find that in general, people are completely converted to the cause of conservation. They understand why it's so important. And I find it a very, um, it's a big responsibility. You have to work very gently with people in that moment of passage from one world to the next. Mm. Um, but now in Africa, I don't think one can come here anymore without awareness. I think you have to understand the impact of your footprint. And you have to go to places that are truly involved in conservation. Um, I, I, I would love to see a revolution in tourism where we move away from this slightly, um, well, you'd move away from, from going to see the big five or, you know, package holidays because you just can go there. Like you can go anywhere else in the world. I think anywhere that we go now, we have to think very carefully about our environmental impact. And we've got to think also how, what can we contribute to yeah. that place, to that experience? If we value wildlife and we value the experience of being with lions or with elephants or cheetah, how vulnerable are they? And, and how is us being there impacting them, either positively or negatively? So as travellers to Kenya, what can we do uh, when, we're, when we're planning our trip to ensure that we are doing the right thing? I think you have to do a lot of research beforehand, get online, um, read up about the different places you're going to and make sure that there really is a, a proper program where they're employing local people. Uh, they're not. I would always advise on going to the smaller camps because I think the smaller camps are much more embedded in each of the locations. They're, they often tend to be more expensive, but I think the experience you get is just off the scale better mm -hmm. than if you go to these big package areas. I know a lot of people can't afford to go to places like that, but in some ways, making Africa a once-in-a-lifetime experience, um, I think you'll, you maybe get more out mm -hmm. of it than if it just is another package tour holiday. Mm -hmm. And another thing I suppose to consider is that um, a lot of people would consider going to Kenya perhaps at the very famous times like the big wildebeest migration for example but it's really a year-round destination uh, I mean what is your favorite time of the year in Kenya when would be another time that visitors could consider going that isn't kind of as as well known in terms of travel I always think that the most beautiful time in Kenya is during the rains or just after the rains and that would be uh, April May June or December, January, mm -hmm. because everything comes alive. You know, here, we're very much at the frontier of climate change. And we're beginning to feel the uh, extreme uh, weather conditions quite acutely. So for mm -hmm. example, right up right now up in Samburu in North Kenya, we have the most unbelievable drought that is devastating the area. And it has this terrible knock-on effect uh, on the wildlife, on the people, on the livestock. Uh, and you really see um, how things are becoming unraveled, I suppose. So when rain comes, rain is life. And rain is, rain is, is the whole landscape regenerates. And everything is filled with this incredible sort of sense of joy and peace and hope. Whether and and so when you you know we never 
talk about difficult things in Kenya until it has rained. And the, and in up in North Kenya with the Samburu, they have these wonderful blessings. So everything is again surrounded by rain. You you when you meet people and if you're trying to bless someone, you'll you'll spit on them. <laughs> and spit is a symbol of rain. And so everything is about guy is about rain. Bring the rain into your life. Let let the milk flow. Let the let the rivers flow. Bring the grass back, and and that is life. So everything that is green is a symbol of peace. And when you want to give someone a peace offering, you offer them some some cut leaves or some grass, and that is a sign of peace. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I agree. And of course, you know, in Britain, you you're fed up of the rain, but we're frightfully jealous of you all. We'd love to have some of your rain here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and and thinking of the Kenyan landscape, I t- we touched on it um, a bit with Gavin um, about how the landscape of Kenya is so diverse that what might first come to mind is you know the Maasai Mara and the Great kind of plains, but there is such a diversity from north to south and east to west, coast, lush forest. What kind of landscape? for someone who hasn't been to Kenya would you would you think would surprise them that they could discover well the Maasai Mara I always think of it like it's like the butter on the table you get you know it's it's just delicious and rich and fat and wonderful as you go out into the rest of Kenya it changes enormously uh, you have these incredible cedar forests up on the Mao escarpment um, and up all the mountains actually um, up in the north where we are it's very much um, an arid landscape much more of a desert with this you know red uh, iron in- infused earth um, and the, the, the silver camphora trees and acacias everywhere of course and then you go towards you know you've got these bright green emerald green farming areas where they do all the tea and the coffee the coast is just beautiful the warm indian ocean uh, i'm one of my favorite places which i'm i'm going to talk to you about later is is i think my secret place i want to tell you about is at the coast um okay. but of course there's also i think what would surprise people is mount kenya and that you can go onto places in mount kenya where it goes below zero at night and you have snow up on the top of the mountain. Um, and it actually feels like you're in Scotland. Hmm. And, and I think what maybe would surprise people is sometimes how cold it gets, because, of course, we're up at altitude. So it can be very hot during the day. But, you know, if you sleep overnight, if you're camping in the Aberdares or you're um, anywhere up on Mount Kenya or even on some of the other mountain areas that you climb, um, or up around Nanyuki and Timau, it gets really chilly at night there. So always, I always recommend people bring with them a pair of jeans or you know nice trousers and a big thick sweater and even slippers to wear mm, in the evenings. Yeah. Well, I mean, Sabah, there is so much that I could ask you about this beautiful, magical country. And I wanted to just get a little taste of your Kenyan travel diaries. I wondered first if perhaps we could reveal your all-time favourite Kenyan destination and why. I suppose if you drew a line, if you go north of the equator, beyond Isiolo, up into what in the old days used to be called the northern frontier, but is now just that incredible wilderness of North Kenya that stretches from Samburu all the way up to the Ethiopian border. I think that is that is my favourite place. Most of it I think the the biggest part of that is the people that live there, the nomads. There are many different tribes there. You have the Samburu, you have the Rendile, the Turkana, the Gabra, the Borana, each with their own distinct language and culture and way of life. But they are some of the most extraordinary, most hardy people that I've ever come across in my life. And when you just spend time with them and talking, um, their stories of hardship, um, resilience, endurance, generosity, just blow your socks off. And I've been enormously lucky to work primarily with the Samburu people. That is my home. That is where I've been raising my children, um, where we've been living for the last six years. And I, um, it has a, it has a, it's very arid, very dry, very wild, um, but there's such a sense of freedom there. Mm-hmm. And you just set off and the horizons just full unfold in front of you. Um, 
and you sleep out under the stars, you, you really need nothing more than a mattress and a mosquito net. And it's an incredible place where you can walk up into tall mountains with cedar forests at the top. There's a huge elephant population there. You get many, many rare and endangered species up in the north. Very different looking from the animals that you find elsewhere in Kenya. So, you know, we have zebra, but they're grevy zebra. We have giraffe, but they're the reticulated giraffe. Um, our oryx are different. Our ostriches are different. And um, even the lions look very different there. They're much more like Egyptian cats. And they have a completely different social structure to what you find down in places like the Maasai Mara. Right. So it's a place to really experience a, a whole different collection of wildlife as well as a different landscape. Yes. And I think one of the things that, uh, you know, people always takes people completely by surprise when they come and stay with us at Elephant Watch is that people come there to meet the elephants, but then they fall completely in love with the Samburu. And you know, the people we work with come directly from the traditional villages. So most of them are, are um, completely uneducated in terms of literacy, but they have this entire reservoir of knowledge. I mean, they're like walking encyclopedias when it comes to um, the plants, the medicinal uses, um, the animal behavior. So we've found this amazing marriage between us coming in as scientists through Save the Elephants and then the knowledge that the Sambu bring to the table, um, both very interested and compatible with each other. And it's been, a, it's been an incredible sort of synergy, I would say, of two very different worlds, that remain very different, but work very well together. That's fantastic. And it's worth really highlighting emphatically that Kenya is now back on the green list for travel and we can go there and experience it finally again. Which is just the best thing that's happened recently. And, you know, up in the north, it's the, the Kenya Tourism Board is trying to um, develop the, a northern circuit. So the southern circuit is very well known. What's not so well known is the northern circuit. And within that are very famous places like Lewa. Um, but there are also some wonderful new little camps that are, are, are popping up all over the place that are very much linked to community tourism, like Kalepo Camp, uh, which is up near the Matthews Range. Um, and uh, there's the, the new little camps being set up in the community conservancies all around Samburu. So I think in a way, I would say to people, come to Kenya, choose one place and explore it thoroughly and spend as much time as you possibly can there. And in each place, spend as much time as you can in each place and really get to know um, the people and the place and the animals. Mm. Mm. Great advice. Finally, then, what about your hidden gem, a place that you know so well that maybe, yeah, maybe my listeners should head there first instead <laughs> of, you know, the, the most famous place. Or maybe you don't want to reveal it. I know it's like your best kept secret. Well, I, that, there, there's a great chunk of truth in that last statement that you made. <laughs> um, I have to say that my all-time favorite place in the world is Kiwayu Island, which is north of the Lamu Archipelago. And there's a fantastic little desert island camp there called Mike's Camp. Kiwayu is 50 kilometers from the Somali border. So for many years, that area has been um, considered, well, there have been travel advisories to going there uh, because of Al-Shabaab movements in and out between Somalia and Kenya. But I think a lot of that has calmed down recently. I think if you're willing to take the chance to go there, there is ample reward. You can fly to Lamu and then you take a boat up. You can either get in a traditional boat, which takes six hours to get you up there, or you can hire a speedboat and it takes you about two hours to get there. But what you find is this wonderful sort of series of shacks made out of um, coconut fiber carpets, a beach uh, that's about um, six or seven kilometers long, absolutely empty, the pounding Indian Ocean coming in on the one side and then a miraculous still lagoon on the other side of the island. And you have the place almost entirely to yourself. And the people that live there are called the Bajuni, and they are they are a, they're part of the Swahili people, um, but they have a lot of Somali blood in them, and they are incredible fishermen 
Um, they have an amazing, I actually did my my thesis, my university thesis um, on their poetry, their sung poetry. They were, they were very descriptive in their um, emotional sentiments. There was a lot of illicit love. And so a lot of their, their poetry, I, I looked particularly at their, their love poetry, um, was about, uh, you know, pain and heartache. And um, I remember one stanza said something like, I'm thirsty, but the well is poisoned. So do I pass and go back home or do I drink and die? And that was all about love. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> um, it was anyway, it was it was a very special time in my life. And Kiwayu would be the place that I would recommend to any intrepid traveler who um is willing to take a chance for not that much risk, um, but to go to one of the most special, remote, unknown um, desert islands in along the coast of Africa. That what a beautiful recommendation. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, Shabba, for your time. What an incredible insight into the most beautiful country. Thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. And I'm so glad that you're so passionate about Kenya. Oh, a huge thank you to Saba and all my guests for bringing Kenya to life so vividly. It's really inspired me to book a trip there. You know, half the time I was meant to be working on this episode, I was just browsing safari lodges and looking at travel guides for Kenya online. My guests just really sold me so much on returning back there and connecting with nature, I think, first and foremost. That sense of space and the feeling of being so close to wildlife is just such a magical magical feeling yeah a really magical feeling no wonder this episode is called magical kenya if you would like to read more about kenya or get some inspiration about where you should go and what you can do there head to magicalkenya.com or follow them on social media or of course check out the websites of your favorite travel magazines who normally offer you know really comprehensive guides I'll be back in a couple of weeks for the start of season six at the end of October. So stay tuned. And in the meantime, take care. Thanks so much for listening. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers? 
just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 